Well, good morning again, Eastbridge. It's good to be with you on this Lord's Day, rainy Lord's Day. And Lord willing, the last Lord's Day, I will be with you probably for a while. And that's a good thing because your new pastor will be coming soon. And we can all thank God for that, for that provision. So I'm very happy for you and may the Lord bless you and bless your new pastor as he comes. Our scripture reading today is found in the book of Revelation, and I invite you to turn to the passage in chapter 2 that we looked at a portion of the last time. It's the message of Jesus to the church in Pergamum in Revelation 2, verses 14 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus is speaking here to the church, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come soon to you and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, so that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is God's word, and we can give thanks today for that. And today we continue in God's word from where we left off two weeks ago in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, in the letter of Jesus, the words to the church at Pergamum. And we remember again that these were real life churches, these were real congregations who were facing real issues, much like you, Eastbridge, in 2023. And Jesus gives both good news and bad news to each of the churches. He commends them and praises them for what they are doing well, and he shows them the ways that they are falling short. And recall that for believers in Christ, God is pleased with the good that we do in his name and for his glory. But let's look back now in chapter 2 in Revelation and we read Jesus' strong and challenging words to the church in Pergamum and his call to repent. Two weeks ago we heard how Jesus praised the church, the Pergamum Christians, for holding fast to Christ and for not denying him, even though it was very costly And it cost a man named Antipas his life. It is not always easy or pleasant to read scripture and to have it challenge the sinful patterns in our lives, in our hearts. I've heard the word of God compared to a surgeon's scalpel, that it cuts away, but it also heals. And as we hear Jesus' strong words, his admonition to the Pergamum Christians, I want to start with reading uh, another passage from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, which will help shed some light on how the Lord works in our hearts. And I'm going to read it in its entirety, and you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. It's from Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 5 to 13. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. 
It is for discipline you have had to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight the paths of your feet so that what is lame may not be found out of joint, but rather be healed." I read the verses from Hebrews to help us put in perspective the admonition in Revelation 2. There are times in every believer's life, in your life and my life, when the Holy Spirit convicts us very strongly of patterns of sin in our lives. But it helps here to pause for a second and to remember one thing, that there is a difference between God's pouring out his wrath in judgment and God's fatherly discipline for his children. If we are believers in Christ today, if we have trusted in Jesus for our salvation, we know that he already bore the wrath of God for our sins. Romans 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Jesus took the punishment and condemnation for your sins and my sins, for all of us who trust in him. But this doesn't mean, again, that God doesn't bring his fatherly discipline to bear on the lives of his children, as the Hebrews passage told us very clearly. It isn't pleasant, but the writer of Hebrews calls us to lift our drooping hands and our weak knees because God's discipline will always bear the fruit of righteousness in our lives. It will always be for our good to sanctify us and to make us more like Christ. So bearing this in mind, let's, let us come back to the Pergamum church in Revelation 2. And this is what Jesus says. And we read in verse 14 that the Pergamum Christians, there was apparently a faction that was following and promoting a kind of unbiblical teaching, a false teaching. And the church was tolerating this group, whoever they were, he or she or they. And this has been the story of the church from the beginning we tend to look at the past sometimes and think of it in a better light than the present. If only we could go back to those New Testament times when everything was so great and perfect in the church and there were never any issues or any problems, then there would be wonderful for all of us. I've been tempted to think that way sometimes. Think about the book of Acts as you read through it. How much false teaching did the church and especially the apostles, Peter and Paul, have to confront? The apostle Paul strongly criticized the Galatians for turning to a works-based gospel, a different gospel, and that was in the lifetime of Paul and the other apostles, perhaps 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. 
and you only need to read a very small part of the book of 1 Corinthians to see all of the problems and difficulties that plagued that church. So Jesus calls out the Pergamum Christians because they were following a teacher molded on the lines of Balaam. And you can read the episode of Balaam in Numbers, chapters 22 through 24 in the Old Testament. To summarize very briefly, Balak, who was the king of Moab, had hired a pagan priest named Balaam to curse Israel. And then a few chapters later in Numbers 25, the Israelites begin to worship Baal. They worship idols. And along with these church members who were following this teaching, there was also a faction that were following the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And you may remember from a few months back when I was with you, the church in Ephesus had this same problem. A group calling themselves the Nicolaitans and teaching false doctrine. So how do we recognize false teaching and false teachers in the church? Well, there are several principles in God's word that we can think of. First, in Matthew 7, Jesus compares false teaching and their teaching to wolves and sheep. False teachers are often like wolves in sheep's clothing. They look good on the outside, but when you peel away the layer, you see what is really there. How do we spot the disguised wolves then? Well, oftentimes there is a lack of genuineness, a fakeness, if you will, that a teacher will sound very sincere, but there is something forced about his words or something inconsistent about the way that he teaches or perhaps the way he lives. Something doesn't match and it's not genuine. Often false teachers draw attention to themselves and not to Christ. A question to ask is, is this teacher or this preacher you are listening to on YouTube or podcast drawing you nearer to Christ, or is he pointing more to himself and his teaching and his ideas? Often false teachers twist the scriptures. They will read meanings into passages rather than drawing out the obvious meaning of God's word. They bring their own views to the Bible and they make the Bible say what they want it to say not what the word of God clearly says. And you can trust today that the Bibles you have in your hands right now are clear. God's word is clear. And its teaching is easy, not always easy to understand, but it is clear. So when you feel confused or by a teacher, then that's a clear sign that perhaps he is not a true teacher of the faith. Second, Jesus compares false prophets and teachers to fruit. And in Matthew 7, he says, beware of the false prophets for we will recognize them by their fruit. Good trees bear good fruit and bad trees bear bad fruit. The fruit in a person's life will be the outward evidence of true or false belief. Just like fruit is the outward evidence of a healthy tree or a tree that's diseased. Bad fruit can be a lack of Christ-like humility. 
and very frequently a lack of godly repentance for sin. When a person's sin or error is pointed out, they, be, they become defensive or maybe turn it back on you and try to point out something off with you. Sometimes the bad fruit is obvious sin in a person's life. Clearly, he or she is not living in a way that honors Jesus. Now let's pause here for a second and say that there is a difference between a false prophet, a false teacher, and a true Christian who is truly mortifying and putting to death sin in their lives with the Lord's help. No believer is totally free from sin in this life. We all understand that. And that's why we have a time of a prayer of confession in our worship. And one day when we are with the Lord in glory, we will be free from sin. So if you are here today and you recognize the sin in your life that you hate, that you are fighting and warring against with the Lord's help, then take heart because the good shepherd knows this that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it and will make you more like Christ. And so there is a difference there with a true believer who is putting to death and putting off the patterns of sin and putting on Christ and a false teacher who teaches only his own doctrine. As we continue in Revelation 2, we see how the false teachers, this Balaam group and these Nicolaitans were leading the Pergamum Christians astray and they were being led into idolatry and sexual immorality. It may be difficult for us in the 21st century to think about idols because we believe we are much too cultured and sophisticated to bow down to statues today. But what are the idols that we worship? Well, first, there is the idol of self. Now, you might think and object, how can a person worship himself or herself? That doesn't seem to make much sense on the surface. But when you think about what an idol is, it is something that draws away that which only belongs to God. Our worship, our devotion, and our affection. And that can be to oneself. We don't have to look very far to see how our culture makes an idol of the self. The wide selection of self-help books on the shelves of the library and the bookstore. The very man-centered preaching and teaching that we often hear from pulpits of supposedly evangelical churches today. A very me-centered. It starts with me and my experience rather than on Christ and his gospel, how to have your best life now, how to be whatever identity you choose, you choose, there is the you again, it's about you, all about you, instead of about Christ and honoring him and glorifying him. There is less of a preaching of sin and repentance and of the holiness of God and of man's guilt of sin and rebellion against God of justification by faith in Christ alone and of the Lord's sanctifying grace in believers, making them more like Christ. There is less of that and there is more of I and me. 
And we see this in the seeker-sensitive style of many churches where the emphasis is on pleasing the people, pleasing the worshipers rather than having worship that glorifies and honors God. I would have to commend you, Eastbridge, and all of the churches that had Lord's Day worship on Christmas Day that did not bow down to the idol of pragmatism and close your doors that day. Patty and I drove home from church on Christmas and we saw a number of churches closed and their parking lots empty. So I thank you and commend you, Eastbridge, for coming together on Christmas Day on the Lord's Day to worship. Second, the Pergamum Christians were being led into sexual immorality. We clearly see that little has changed from their day to our day. Just in our hyper-sexualized day today, the first century churches faced the same thing. And this doesn't need much comment from me. I'm certain all of you know how much immorality is out there around us. It just, you just need to look as far as the computer or the phone where the worst kind of garbage is just a few clicks away for you to see. A culture that bows down to whatever sexual choice you decide to make to be your authentic self a culture that considers it bigotry to say that God created us in his good design as male and female. And the sexual union to be between a husband and wife, one man and one woman in marriage. Now, some might say that, well, I'm being prudish and puritanical and Victorian and all of the other favorite words that culture likes to throw at us anyone who has a biblical view of sexuality. But I am only repeating what God's word tells us about sex and marriage. His words. So let let them say, let the critics say that. Let them call us all sorts of names because we hold on to God's standard. And Jesus said the world would hate us because of our testimony for him. And so we read again the sobering and challenging words from Jesus to the Pergamum Christians, but also for us in 2023. How does Jesus challenge them? In verse 16, Jesus says, repent. So what does it mean to repent? It's a word that we have heard often, and maybe it helps to stop and think about what it means. Well, in general, repenting means turning from your sin to Christ. The shorter catechism's definition of repentance unto life, question 87, if you're curious, says this, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. I couldn't give a better definition than the Westminster Divines did, and I encourage you to read it, question 87. Repentance, I think, is not a concept that is maybe well understood today. 
it is even falling out of favor in many evangelical churches to speak of repentance. They believe that the world will not listen to us, so we have to be compromised and be less confrontational, or people won't listen to us. And to that I say that they won't listen to us if the Holy Spirit is working in their hearts to open their eyes and their ears to the truth, then they will. So trust in the Lord's work and the person that you are speaking to about the hope you have in you. So today we come back to the personal. Is there sin in your life that you need to repent of today? Are there areas that you as Eastbridge Church need to turn back to Christ? Turn to him then and know that he is forgiving and good, abounding in faithfulness to all who call upon him. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Jesus promises the saints in Pergamum a reward and three rewards, hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. And commentators differ about the meaning of each of these and what they symbolize, but they, whatever they do, they show Jesus's special love for the Pergamum Christians. Manna was God's provision in the desert when there was no food, much like the Pergamum Christians were in a cultural desert. A white stone may well symbolize the security they had as believers in Christ. A stone is not something that can be moved easily. 2 Corinthians 5 says that believers are new creations in Christ. They, as we, are made new. And in that sense, we have a new name. We are the sheep of his pasture. And stones are strong building materials. And know that if Jesus compares you to a stone, then that's a wonderful praise from him that we can't be moved in him. So I hope and pray that God's word today challenged you first to take a look at your heart. Are there idols in your heart that are taking your devotion away from Jesus Christ when it should be only to him? Second, as a church, Eastbridge, to guard yourselves against false teachers who will distort the gospel and try to pull you away from the clear teaching of God's word. And remember this today, that for all who truly repent of their sins and who place their faith in Jesus, there is grace and there is forgiveness in him. That is the good news of the gospel. It was the good news 2,000 years ago for the Pergamum Christians, and it's still good news for us today. And it's the good news that we celebrate in a few minutes coming around the Lord's table. So repent and believe today in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, we love you and love your word. Uh, it is wonderful for us to, to come today on the Lord's day and to hear this very challenging message from that you spoke, Lord Jesus Christ, to the Pergamum Christians. And I pray that it would encourage us, we, that we here would know your grace, and that if anyone here does not know you, that they would turn in faith to you, uh, Lord Jesus, good shepherd and savior. 
And we pray now as we come to your table that it would be a joyful time that we would remember your death and resurrection for us on the cross. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.